Uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> oh my God. Bro, this is our 10th episode. <laughs> Holy crap. This is our 10th episode? <laughs> yeah. Time really flies when you're in quarantine. <laughs> well, we've only done two. Hey, we've only done two of these in quarantine. So yeah, hold up and use quarantine as your, as your explanation. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, sorry, I'm just distracted by Jesse Ventura. Mama, yeah, that's Jesse. Ooh, where's Jesse Ventura? I want to see Jesse Ventura. No, it's a Jesse Ventura lunchbox. Yeah, I could get behind that. <laughs> okay, okay, fine. Intro, intro. Go. <laughs> Hello, hello, everybody. <laughs> Who the hell uh, are you? Who are you even now? Hello. <clears throat> Two hours later. Matthew, go for it. Oh, I, oh, I, oh, I thought you were doing it. No, I thought you were doing it. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> what is our intro? What is our intro? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Three Point Landing. We are stuck at home, but we're still recording. I am Matthew. I'm Misha. And and let's go. Yeah, this is the second episode of our quarantine sessions. Today, we're going to be talking about all the stuff that we have been watching while we've been stuck at home. And um, not all of it is necessarily on Netflix, believe it or not. I don't know about you, but I am just looking forward to this to end so that I can stay indoors voluntarily. <laughs> Yeah, I have a confession to make. I I forgot to pay my Netflix. No, I didn't forget to pay for my. I can't pay my Netflix. Why can't you pay for your Netflix? Because um, so I use I use a prepaid credit card to pay for everything that requires a credit card. Yeah, uh, it allows me to put uh, financial limits on how much I spend on on services and stuff like that. Uh, and now that the banks are almost always full or too far to access. Right, I haven't right. gone around to refilling the card. Uh, so Netflix just went, whoop, you couldn't pay. And actually, it used to be uh, Netflix could pay PayPal because that's what I got a lot of. I got a lot. Of, I'm sitting on, a lot, on quite a decent amount of PayPal monies <laughs> right Ooh, now. I to, wish I had monies. But the they don't, pay, they, they don't, they don't take PayPal anymore. Right? Uh, they stop, or rather, they stopped taking PayPal from the Philippines because the Philippines has a great reputation. <laughs> <laughs> of people like you know refunding or whatever or just like trying to screw around with the system to get to get PayPal money back. Right, right. Yeah. So I've I've I've, I've had to live like someone without Netflix. Oh my god. There, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I. <laughs> okay, to- fine. So what if what have you been watching? I know you've been playing video games all day, but what 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 have you been watching when you're not so, playing with your thumbs? Uh, well, sometimes. Sometimes I work. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't, no. that get, doesn't that get in the way of much needed leisure? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> God, work. Uh, <laughs> Fine. Tell me about this work. Well, some of it involves filling in game store catalog information. Well, wait, okay. were you serious or were you like, <laughs> or were you just joking? I, I can't even tell anymore. I've been indoors for so long. <laughs> Uh, no, but seriously, what have you been up to? I mean, besides playing games and working and whatnot. I have been binging on a lot of YouTube stuff. No kidding. Like what? Um, well, I mean, I think, I think, I don't know. I can't speak to, for everybody, but for me, like, 
because there's a YouTube app on the PlayStation 4, it's a way of life for me. I've considered okay. subscribing to Curiosity Stream, to Mubi, and to all these other streaming services, but they don't have a PlayStation app. So why, you know, I don't want anything that is more that is inconvenient to me. I'm pretty sure they'll survive without your contribution. Yeah, I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I uh, there's a lot of stuff I've been following. Uh, the thing I did most recently of note is I've started backing this guy named Jacob Geller. Um, okay. He has a patron. So this guy, Jacob Geller, he is a, an essayist or like someone who makes videos about video games. And that sounds like the most mundane thing because there's a lot of video games. Not at game. all. Not at all. Yeah. What, what I mean, this one different? I mean, video game content goes hand in hand with the, with the domain. Uh, but what Jacob does is he always he ties it with cultural analysis and critical analysis I think the thing I, I value the most out of this work is mm-hmm. that there's a sense of willingness to bear his emotions and his politics from the heart. Uh, let me speak to this. Like, for example, one of his videos is called, Does Call of Duty Believe in Anything? And, and it's a great video. Like, I mean, it's very easy to dunk on Call of Duty. But the, and, and that is technically what he does. He, take, talks, he looks at Call of Duty's, uh, the stories, the kind of stories that the most recent game told, Modern Warfare. And right. what it's trying to say about the world around it and like how war is waged and try to reconcile that with the fact that as part of marketing, the people who write and make Call of Duty games are like, this game is not a political game. Like that's the claim that they stand by because they're trying to avoid sort of like they want to, av- people who make consumer products like video games, they try to avoid being dragged into the culture war that defines the way that has come to define the way we talk about entertainment nowadays. And they do that by claiming their games are not political, even though when a game is about two foreign, you know, two, uh, two different countries in, engaged in conflict over resources and of course um, the security of the, of the world, politics is going to get involved. And he kind of like, he, he takes that apart, but the goal isn't ha ha, you know, I've exposed the sham or the lie that is, you know, Activision and Call of Duty, but rather the goal is to say like, well, if we take them at their word, uh, you know, what does Call of Duty believe in? What does it say about the state? And it's really, really, it's a really, really good video. He's got other videos like um, Anatomy and Control. He talks about this, this game called Anatomy about, about uh, how it takes place inside a haunted house. And another popular game you know about called Control, which takes place in a haunted office building right. and tries to like mix them together and explore like uh, the things that art and literature have to say about haunted houses and the people who live in them. And, he's, and this is the kind of work that he builds on. So I've decided like, since I really like the fact that it's not just, oh, I'm going to be smarter than everybody by telling you, you know, this is what, this is, uh, this is why I believe Mario is the best game ever, or this is why this game is superior. Like, that's not, he's not going to those like weird claims of objective validation or evaluation, but rather, you know, doing real informed cultural and critical analysis. And so I've decided to back him up on Patreon. Okay, fine. That sounds all good and well, but um, for me, okay, this is my take on it, right? As much fun as it would be to look into the social cultural ramifications of, let's say, Call of Duty. I think at the end of the day, I don't think anybody boots up these games with the intention of looking at the geopolitical state of the world or the statement that the producers were trying to make when they're making it. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. Like, it would be delusional to say that people engage with popular entertainment for the sake of highbrow reasons 
100 percent of the time right. all the time but i do think it's um it's meaningful and important to evaluate and and criticize art even if it has absolutely no impact on the audience that it is intended for i guess that's fair from um just putting yourself outside of that sphere yeah but, yeah you know but a lot of the time you know like when i put a game in you know i just want to be taken out of the world for mm-hmm. a little while honestly that's why what i've been finding um with my with my basic uh my basically with my whole gaming with my reborn gaming status i'm more partial to games with engaging narratives now than i am just to senseless violence or to yeah. um just um graphics for the sake of graphics or action for the sake of action i'm really yeah. enjoying stuff where i can engage with the characters and follow a narrative to the point that what keeps me going isn't that i want to shoot more guys or beat up more baddies it's more like I want to know what happens next. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I love that stuff. Like for me, I'm, I'm, I think I, I identify with the same feeling. Like I don't like playing games for pure game. I like them for stories and characters. I think stories and characters are the vessels that allow, that carry us and motivate us through an experience. So right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like nobody, nobody goes to Marvel movies. Nobody would go to Marvel movies if the characters weren't inherently interesting. You can put all the spectacle you want. You That's can put true. all the all the the convoluted plots that you want, right. you know, and make it into some kind of weird, twisty, lost J.J. Abrams style thing. But if the characters aren't compelling, no one's gonna care. Absolutely, you mm-hmm. you'd end up with something like Transformers. Everything after mm-hmm. the first one was just eye candy and not much else. Yeah, and I'm I feel I really feel the way you feel, you know, sincerely because my, your relationship with games and my relationship with games skews very differently from the kinds of relationship that my other fellow hardcore gamers uh, have, which is they're very engaged with, and there's a valid way of engaging games. They're very engaged with systems and mechanics. Like they love picking apart, you know, how, how strategies and builds of their characters and skills and levels. Like they love all these little mechanical bits that make up the game. And that's how they engage with them. Like what do they represent this sort of beautiful, elegant design? And I'm like, right. I, yeah, and I can, and I can appreciate that. Like I, I play Civilization and, and Baltech for the tactical, stuff but Absolutely. at the end of the day i don't like baltic as much as i do like xcom or the upcoming years tactics because baltic barely has any characters <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, the characters get, are just flat yeah but you get to walk around in giant robots yeah yeah that's um it, a game for me needs to a game for me needs to serve at least some of my desires and it's like if the game is not mechanically interesting i'm not gonna play it unless the characters are good right like that's what i'm that's what i'm saying that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, but Battletech gets away. Battletech gets away with having no characters because at least the gameplay is fun. <laughs> Speaking of um, having no characters, but the gameplay is fun. Something I've been watching increasingly on YouTube is um, histories of old video games and arcade games because, like, it's just fascinating to see how things that you just took for granted as cornerstones of your childhood gaming experience all the incredible ridiculous um eyebrow raising histories behind a lot of them there's so much there's so much backstabbing and politics and 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 all sorts of other things for something that is ostensibly a child a a children's product i mean well you know what you're you're talking about if you're talking about like video games are products of culture and their works of art and their works of design. So there's always going to be a story in there somewhere. And some, those stories are have the potential to be just as wacky, dramatic, or weird 
uh, some of the craziest stories we hear about how television shows and, and movies are made. Fair enough. But you don't yeah. think about that when you're a 10 year old trying to figure out how to play Street Fighter. <laughs> That's fair, man. But maybe, maybe <laughs> I, maybe I skew, maybe I skew differently. I think, okay. So these channels that you I, talk about. I don't know. I just imagine like when you were a 10 year old, you, you were probably like Stewie on Family Guy. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Actually, I was going to get at get that, which is that um, one of the things I always tell people is that I am, and one of the reasons why I don't get excited about, uh, one of the reasons why I don't get attracted to content that's about trivia and facts and stuff like that is, and I say this with absolutely no arrogance, whatsoever, is because I know a lot of those things. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I don't maintain that as a point of pride. It's not like, it's not like, ooh, look at me. I know everything about Sid Meier's civilization. It's right. just, it's just, it's just an accident of my of my growing up. It's an accident of the way I consume culture as a child. And so the script for me has flipped now that I'm less interested in trivia and more interested in analysis. But you know, I, I, before I, you know, less about me. What I want to know is like, I want to know like what channels you've been watching that have have focused on video game trivia and stories and lore because. Those things, hearing people talk about it still excites me in a way because they, those stories are just interesting on their own merits. Right, right. Like, what have you, what have you been watching about uh, which channels are these? Which, I, which I don't know if I want to tell you because now it sounds like it's so lowbrow. No, 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 no. All entertainment is valid. I'm not trying, you know, it's, it's, it's all, all consumption is valid. Right. Okay, fine. Um, basically what I love, um, I actually like the gaming historian, to be perfectly honest, he's a little bit dry, but I mm-hmm. like that he does a lot of research into his stuff, whether he's talking about a classic release or a piece of, of obscure ancient hardware. Um, even if he's kind of dry, you can always tell that he's excited about it. Um, yeah. he's, and he's not crass about it. He's not like, um... The angry video game nerd who just yeah. seems to, who just you know curses for the sake of cursing a lot of the time, and it's not nowhere yeah. near as novel after ten years as some people seem to think it is. But with a gaming historian, um, he really takes an effort to put things into context, and yeah. I, I, I actually I genuinely appreciate that. I think uh, I think the gaming historian does produce valuable work because um, what what he does I think his name is a uh, Norman Norman Caruso or something like that. yeah Norman Caruso something like that yeah. Yeah, he. Some of these topics that I've seen are things I do know, but I appreciate the fact that they're organized and they're easy to find and they're easy to index. So, and I think that's a that's a valuable pursuit. You know, um, knowledge should always knowledge and facts and trivia should always be easily available and presentable in a, in an accessible and an engaging format. And that's what gaming histor- historian accomplishes. Well, here's the thing. Here's a here's a here's something else. Um, the thing about like growing up as an all-around nerd and all-around geek, right? Um, you take mm. it for granted that you know these things. I admit that also to some degree. But you have to realize that not everybody had access or has access or bothers to read or consume the content that we do. So yeah, I yeah. think it's great that stuff like this exists for a general yeah. audience, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very aware that where I come from is a bizarre position, which is the, um, you, you are position, bizarre. Yeah, with the bizarre position, which is <laughs> um, consuming like consuming information as leisure. Mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, like, like that's right. that's something that's something all nerds enjoy. You, me, like we love consuming information for leisure, and that's why for those people who don't and want to cons- and want to 
and require information to be presented in a deliberately entertaining fashion because the information itself is not entertaining on its own terms is is a very valuable service. Eh, I guess. Three point landing. What else was I gonna say? Um, another one that I enjoy is um Top Hat Gaming Man. I think I've mentioned this before. And yeah, I think so. He's a British. I don't know well. He's a British yeah. YouTuber. And he likes to look at, um, recently he did a whole run of fighting game documentaries. Sometimes he puts up like two a week, I think. And it's uh-huh. really incredible. It's really good stuff because he's really well, re- he's well researched. He's, he speaks well. And I, I generally like his writing. But what I appreciate about it when he talks about, say, something like Street Fighter versus X-Men, he'll put it in the context of the other fighting games or crossover games that were out at the time. And he tries mm. to find, he also makes an effort to find contemporary reviews um, of the titles that he talks about. And he talks about how these games have aged well or haven't aged well, talks about their legacies and that sort of thing. And um, he got so popular, in fact, that he was able to actually stop his job a year or two ago, just concentrating completely on this. Yeah. On making have, content, which I think is incredible. A, is, is YouTube his primary income stream or now? Uh, because it is now. It, it and is this, now. But um, that was true up until a couple of days ago because uh, days YouTube, unfortunately, if you, I don't know if you're familiar, has ch- once again changed their algorithm. So it makes it very difficult to actually make a living off of YouTube videos. For everybody out there who wants to be a YouTube star, it is increasingly difficult because you don't know what the rules are going to be from one month to the next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, like so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at his channel right now, actually. Yeah. Um, top Hat Gaming Man, yeah. and I'm seeing that he has the, the the post from a week ago called "I'm Not Happy, I Hate Feeling Like This," and right. a post he just did yesterday called "I'm Done." And I take it without opening the video that he's gonna speak to the fact that the the income stream hasn't necessarily dried up, I guess, but it's definitely unreliable. So one month, you know, you can make X thousand dollars in advertising revenue, right, and then right. the next month you'll make like half of it or double that, and you know. For for those in a long stretch of things, that's still better than a working class income, but it also makes financial uh, financial planning incredibly difficult. I would imagine. But yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, YouTube as a platform. Do you remember what it was like when you first started, like 10, 12 years ago? It was something that nobody had ever seen. This was the place you went to look for videos that you couldn't find anywhere else. Uh, this is where people put up viral videos. This is where they, they previously had what sent through 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 what message boards and emails. Uh, this yeah, is where right. this is where people put up um, uh, videos of um, let's say stage performances or concerts that you couldn't right. find anywhere else. This um, is this was a, a place time, there was a time where people when YouTube could just was, share. There was a time that uh, YouTube became the place to store like. Uh, comedy sketches from lesser-known comedians yes. who, was a po- who, because of YouTube, became much more successful than they yes, would be. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's why it's just incredible to me that the, with the success that this platform um, received, that they would make things difficult for their content creators. Okay, I know that's one way of looking at it, but on the other hand, fine. There are a lot of people who actually abuse the platform, and that's what necessitated some of the changes. But at the end of the day, because Google, who owns YouTube now, has the power to dictate, it leaves a lot of these people high and dry when things change because they have no say in it whatsoever. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's sort of a double bind in the sense that 
YouTube, uh, Google and YouTube are offering a hosting for these videos, like for free. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and the, like the, the cost, the cost of getting into the ecosystem is zero. But right. at the same time, like we already know from Facebook and all the other tech companies that, you know, they make money off of not just, they make money off of advertising. They make money off of, of mining for, for, for more data and analytics and right. selling that, those analytics to other people or other Absolutely. companies or government bureaus who need it or yes. want it. Yes. And yeah, like, but the thing is, when you sign up, they're making it like, do or you should be so lucky to have them, but really they should be so lucky to have you because for as long as you become a member of all the people who make up the YouTube people, you're just attracting more and more people into it to watch. So right. the YouTube monster is just like this weird mutant that's just growing bigger and bigger and bigger with each piece being added to it. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's I like love the Borg. It. It's like the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we should talk about the Borg in a little bit, but for my for my part, um, I think that the mere fact that YouTube exists, I mean, in any form, I mean, as convoluted as it is now, it's still it's still kind of a great equalizer for smaller content creators to talk about things that otherwise probably would never receive an audience from a mainstream outlet, and mm-hmm. also they can talk about niche topics or mm-hmm. or, or subjects that you know. Um, yeah, you would not imagine anybody else taking on. Yeah, yeah, you know, like what you said there, it's like incredibly idealistic. Twelve years later, for <laughs> yeah, you, for, for, like for you to make that assertion, but right. I think it's, but I think it actually remains true. The biggest difference between the year two thousand and eight yeah. and the year twenty twenty now is right. is another thing you said, which is that it is just now more difficult to monetize and profit. Right. Off of the off of that niche, because exactly the, now you're just it, it, five ten years ago you were just one in one billion voices, right? And now you are one one in ten in eight billion voices, just just screaming out into YouTube and having your content become profitable is just more difficult. Right. Never mind, and this is a consequence again of a crowded marketplace that is natural and organic to all like creative fields, but it's also a consequence of another thing you talked about. The unreliable, ever-changing, mysterious algorithm that YouTube <laughs> keeps changing. You I know. know. Yeah, and that's why more and more people are turning to turning to alternative rev, uh, uh, income streams, not just Patreon, which is a great way of of getting money, but also, by the way, uh, side note, Patreon recently changed its terms now oh. so that they could pull off a greater percentage of your profits. No kidding. I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, well, they need an operating income. But right. on the other hand, like, uh, I don't know, we're the ones who are growing your platform. <laughs> oh, boy. Everything comes down to money, doesn't it? Yeah. Capitalism, baby. Capitalism. Why aren't we making money? How do, <laughs> how do we get in on how do we get in on that action? Uh, well, we could monetize this podcast and put it behind a paywall. <laughs> mm, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I love the 10 people who listen to this. <laughs> So what else have you been watching? Um, still more YouTube. I have lots of stuff to share with you. Actually, I think I'm going to, after this show, I'm going to share you with some of the videos that I'm talking about um, the YouTube, the, the, some of the issues of YouTube 
uh, that you and I talked about today. And sure. um, if you if you think if any of them like strike your fancy are really interesting, we can post them up on the Facebook page for everybody to see. No, for sure. I mean, let's let's share all the pages that we've been talking about so that people can see what we're watching and they yeah, can decide yeah. whether or not they agree with us, or they disagree with us, or just want to pick a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's the internet, man. Those ten fans yeah. that we got, you know, they could be vicious. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure my mom really wants to fight with me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that. <laughs> Actually, a, 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 big, a nice video channel I want to recommend to you is uh, Game Maker's Toolkit. Okay. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a series by Mark Brown, uh, a former video games reviewer, but he turned to YouTube content creation. It's all just um, really clean, really presentable, and, and uh, uh, engaging content about game design, about how uh, certain video games feel good or play good and how they make you like uh, some of my favorite essays from are like how video games protect you from your own mistakes or really yeah 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 like some of those are some or um, what makes good EA uh, good EA good EA good AI <laughs> or video games uh, protect you from your mistakes are you talking about the dumbing down of video games that's really no 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 happening? no 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 but rather like tiny design tools that, that protect you and um, for example, invisible tutorials, meaning how a video game can be designed so that when you play it for the first 30 minutes, it's teaching you how to play without overtly teaching you how They're to play. They're not that invisible. <laughs> yeah, well, he singles out examples because, of course, there uh -huh. are many bad because there are many bad examples. That or, is true. I yeah. always feel like I'm being pandered to whenever the games start with a tutorial, honestly. But I know that... Number one, it cuts down on costs to actually print an instruction manual, and number two, nobody reads instruction manuals anyway. Yeah, not in the year, not in the year twenty twenty. I kind of, I kind of like tutorials, but at the same time, I always feel like there's a way of presenting them that hit a few stumbling blocks, and I could do that. We could talk about video game tutorials in another episode, but sure. I'll tell you one thing: I don't like, I don't like the tutorial that says the game will freeze. <laughs> and then it will give you a big text box telling you how to right, do a thing. Right. And then it will say, press X to understand. Mm -hmm. And then when you press X to understand and you close it, the window disappears. And then you have to remember how to do the thing that you just read. And if you forgot about it, you're screwed. And you can't open up the panel again to remember how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. You just, just either guide me through a proper tutorial wherein... You know, there's a training officer who says, no, you're doing it wrong. Do it again. Or um, make the, the informational prompts like something that you do in the game. So, for example, like it'll tell you to do it and you just do it without pausing the action and stuff. But anyway, that's for another episode. Shitty tutorials oh, suck. Oh, man. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I just remembered something about, I just remembered something about old instruction manuals. Do you yeah. remember back in the days when you had to go to these sketchy stores in the mall and they would install the games onto your hard drive or give it to you on a bunch of diskettes or even on a CD? And Are you kidding? I was raised there. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, the, here's, here's the kicker. They would give you, they'd give you photocopies of the instruction manual. By give you, you mean pay, I had to pay for them, yes. Well, yes, you did. And uh, back, in the, back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the time, if you didn't have the instruction manual, you couldn't get around the copy protection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to respond to that. You are not talking about my childhood. Um, <laughs> no, because you're, all, way, you're way older. This is your early adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> Why, yes.
when tell the children about about rudimentary copy protection. Yeah, my 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 dad would my dad would abandon me and my brother in in Vero Mall for like six hours on a weekend. I love Green Hills. (laughs) Yeah, and in Vero Mall, and you know, for those of you all who aren't from the Philippines or Manila, uh, Vero Mall is this infamous mall uh, that throughout the late twentieth century, eighties to nineties, was a hotbed of like. Uh, bootleg software and lots of like affordable computing, uh, computer hardware. Not and just, not just. It even had like in its sketchy little alleys, it would have, huh. you could find anything from vintage toys, Betamax tapes, VHS tapes, laser discs. Yeah, it was um, hipster. It mar- was hipster. Martial arts weapons. It, it was, was ridiculous. It was, it was hipster before the word hipster existed. I so wouldn't say hipster. No, I well, wasn't hipster. It was just a wretched hive of scum and billity. <laughs> and a fire hazard. It was a fire hazard. That thing would go on fire. Fires would break out like twice a year. Easy. That thing was ridiculous. Oh man, man, you're making me nostalgic. Not yeah, for fire, but for, but for fire. No, but you know, it was. I was so upset Allergy. when they renovated it and it became all well lit and clean and respectable. I'm like, I know this, this is boring. <laughs> you know, you know, you you know, you read those old, you read those old '80s cyberpunk novels about you know the gritty streets. And the rain and the neon <laughs> lights and the and you know and the cassettes and the and the videos and you know all the ancient com- and all the computers like that's literally Vero Mall. <laughs> that was Vero Mall. That really I, you was. Know, if, I if, I, that if, place. I, if I had an awareness of what cyberpunk was, I would have mm-hmm. I, I probably would have been like you know it was Saturday night. You know the rain came down hard. I tucked into an alley <laughs> past the su- past the sugarcane juice vendor. <laughs> Man, the good times, good times. I mean, I, yeah, you can spend the whole weekend there and only not even see half of it. <laughs> but, okay, go back to go back to the computer store. Go to the games. Okay, yeah, go to yeah, your so go to your sketchy pirated games. Yeah, and my dad was friends with a guy with the, with the guy who owned a place called Data Venture, and Data Venture was oh, man, I remember video that games. Place. Yeah, so, I remember uh, that place. So he had a standing arrangement. Now, now Data Venture, if I recall correctly, would charge you. I think. Not sure if it was twenty-five pesos or forty pesos to copy to to get to get the game discs basically for the copy of disc for you. So you could get, let's say, uh, you get Wolfenstein three D, and you would like give them two discs and they'd photocopy it and they'd copy it for you. Right. And my arrange my arrangement because my dad's friends was like we would be able to copy for free as long as we brought our own discs and we did the copying <laughs> ourselves. So okay. none of the, none of the staffers would. Would attend to us necessarily. We would just come in with a with a stack of discs and use their and, computer. Yeah, and use their computer to manually copy it ourselves. And you know, like when you're when you're 13, this is a fucking big deal, man. Because you would have to go and and I'm coming from Parinaque, you know, which is several kilometers down south of Bromo. So we're talking like an hour drive. Right. And right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to, we go there and we 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 we'd copy the games. And the thing that would be such a bummer because you know how things were weird when you get is that we'd copy the games in in in, in Verma, and when we get back home we'd be like we'd be excited to play them we'd fight over who gets to play on the computer and a lot of stuff and if a disc was busted or if it just didn't copy properly it's like well you gotta wait until next week to do it again you know what i mean yep, i think yeah i can't remember the names offhand of some of the games but there's some games to this day where i just like i remember i tried copying you like eight times and i could never get you to work <laughs> you're like the one that got away like what? Like what? Space Quest, uh, um, yeah. Loom, Loom. <laughs> yeah, and you think you were talking about copy protection? So this is the thing because 
video games could be because PC games could be copied so easily. Right. Um, they manufacturers and publishers had to resort to uh, copy protection to keep their games from being used, even though the copies were quote unquote functionally perfect. And the most popular version of that would be uh, the manual check. Like the game would say, "Oh, before you can proceed, adventure, tell me." What is the ancient lore of this and that and that? And the answer to that question would not be found anywhere except in the manual. You made it sound like, so fancy. I mean, you could have just said, tell me what the symbol is on page 14. No, it, de- <laughs> it depends. It actually depends sometimes on the purpose of writing or designing game. Some of them would just be like, before you proceed, what is the second word in the third sentence of the fourth paragraph? Exactly. Page, exactly. Page, 50 to page 52. You didn't but need no, to some, spell out some, the lore. Yeah, some but some of yeah, some of them would check the lore and you know, what? it was a way of it was a way of disguising it so that people would copy the game and they'd be like, Oh, there's no real copy protection, but actually it's in the manual, you know. Right. And, and and that's like that was funny because what happened was video game companies or, or creators would start creating elaborate manuals and documentation that supported the world of the game that right. felt like just extra fluff, but actually was supposed to be informative. While the chumps in the pirating world will be all like, this is not important. Throw it over their shoulder and not provide it with the pirated game. <laughs> you know, like they'll just be like, oh, this is important because it's not a, it's not an explicit copy protection device. Right, right, right. Unlike, let's say, uh, and one, one form of explicit copy protection was, uh, was the, the, the copy protection wheel from Monkey Island. It's a, it's, I love that it, one. Yeah, it's, it's fun, but it's obviously a copy protection device. But it is, it's just like, it's, Two cardboard wheels spin together, and you spin them around, and they form different faces of pirates. And the year that they were hanged, mm-hmm. and so at the start of the game, it would say like, you know, check your dial-up pirate wheel. This pirate was hung in Barbados at what year? And you would rotate it and get the year and stuff like that. You know, it's funny. You know, it's funny. But sometimes we didn't have the game manual. Sometimes we just have the game. We wouldn't have the manual, so we would guess. Yeah, guessing. guessing. <laughs> But that depends. And then if, if that, you get, and then if you don't get it, you gotta start at the beginning again. Yeah, that, but that depends, of course, if the game can be brute forced, right, know, like, right. like that, like that. Some games have have copy protection permutations that are so insane you can't brute force it. In the case of the copy protection wheel, you're talking about what year was this pirate hung, and mm-hmm. it's four, it's four digits, which means you have nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine combinations. <laughs> Absolutely, but you know mm-hmm. what? The first time I encountered that was on. The very first Prince of Persia. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't even remember the copy production for that one. What was it uh-huh. like? Ah, you enter a room that's full of potions. That's every, right. Every single one is poison, except for the one that's labeled with the letter from a certain page, from a certain paragraph, from a certain sentence in the manual. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Chamba Chamba Lang units. You, you, you had to rely on luck if you mm-hmm. didn't have the manual. So you'd go in. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, what, so, you, so you'd be like, all right. I'll try this one and that one and that one. And because when you die, you just get booted back to the beginning. You'd be like, well, I'll just do it again. <laughs> right? I, I just got to tell you, though, that that first Prince of Persia, it's a miracle of, um, of motion capture, pixelated Indeed. motion capture. But it's also one of the most evil games ever made. I know, right? <laughs> the control was so spotty and the hit detection so specific and... The platforming so unforgiving that it's like the makers of that game hated you. They hated you for playing their game, which, made you, a, which made you want to beat it all the more. But that's the thing. Hate was such a common common design trope in in, in the earliest P 
PC and, and, and console games, which is the idea that, <laughs> you know, the, 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 for $60, you pay for a game and they could only make so much content. So what they would do is they would make sure that they had an adversarial relationship with the player in matters of challenge. I think the biggest offender of this would be um, Sierra Online, creator of the Space Quest, King's Quest, Police Quest games. Oh, which man. Is that, playing which is Space like, Quest. Playing, playing Space Quest, especially if you came off playing a LucasArts adventure game, it was like night and day. Night and day, night and day. I, I, I want to get I want to get back to that conversation. About, sorry, sorry. Uh, Sierra versus LucasArts. But uh, I want to go with focus on Sierra first for a minute, which is that they had a tendency, like, because these games were only about if you played them with all the solutions in front of you, the games would be incredibly short. Right. So uh, the games design puzzle, the game puzzle design, because these are point and click adventures for those right. of you who don't know, uh, which means co- combining objects and talking to people to solve puzzles. Mm-hmm. So they would ask you to do trial and error, and there's a lot of like trial and error, a lot of punishing you for not having an object at a very specific design time, and also like if you had an object that was important. It was easy for you to throw it away, and and the, there was nothing in the game to tell you, "Hey, don't throw that away. That will be important later." Right. And the game also had a tendency to punish you with death, with lots and lots of death, and no auto. This is about time before auto saves, right? So, but but here's the thing: the thing about that is what I really appreciated about the Lucas Arts adventures is that they were play tested within an inch of their life to the point yes, that's that right. they they wouldn't let you get into a situation where you couldn't win. Yeah. Even the worst, even the worst, or rather, even the most um, archaic of the LucasArts games, um, Maniac Mansion, uh, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, and Damn Indiana it, I was going to say Day of the Tentacle, but that was the second one. Yeah. And Indiana Jones and the, and the, and the Last Crusade. Right. Like these, these games had, you, you could die in these games and you could destroy some objects, but there was a sense of how the puzzles were designed that they were intuitive at least, or you could, figured them out with common sense, whereas King's Quest tended to be like, you know, guess random shit. Right. <laughs> and also, like, you know, it was impossible to, like, get rid of an object that you might need later on in LucasArts games. Yeah, uh, this this was, um, this started with Monkey Island, which is the fourth game on the list, which is pretty early if you think about it. The fact that he could learn this lesson so fast is, I think, testament to how great a company that LucasArts was. Like, yeah. Secret of Monkey Island, you couldn't, in Secret of Monkey Island, there is a bit where they make fun of Sierra. Do you what remember this one? Say? No, I don't. The, what do they say? When you when you arrive in Act, in Act Three, when you arrive at Monkey Island, and there's a big you can go high up on the rocks, and as you go to the edge of the rock, a rock will break apart and you will fall down, and you will fall and it will and it will show a Sierra style. Like the style is very Sierra like, you know, it's got the white text and the white box and the black text that says, "Oh, look, you fell and died." You know, it looks like you'll have to start over. Hope you save your game. That's what I'll say. And then Guybrush will, the main character Guybrush will bounce back up from where he fell and land back on the rock plateau. That's right. And he'll say, right. and he'll say rubber tree. I know. I love that. I love that. Because that's what I loved about the LucasArts adventure games. In fact, the whole point wasn't trying to stay alive. The whole point was the story and the puzzles. So, you know, why would you want to enable characters to die yeah. And okay, okay, fine. Okay, to be fair, it was possible to kill Guybrush because one of the boasts that he makes on his quest to becoming a mighty pirate was that he could hold his breath for a half hour. So, 10 minutes, actually. Sorry, 10 minutes. <laughs> and the game actually gives you a chance to try that out. Yeah, you, you, when, when the sheriff, when, when the sheriff of, of, of Melee Island throws you into the water, who is actually, you know, uh, well, we just Greg Pirate Lechuk. 
Oh, oh. You know, there you was, I not, was I not supposed to say that? Uh, you were not supposed to spoil a 30-year-old game. It's a spoiler <laughs> to a 30-year-old game. I don't think anyone cares anymore. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> but yeah, you could actually keep Guybrush. He's tied to a rock at the bottom of, of the port. Mm-hmm. And you have all of these crazy cutting implements just out of his reach. There's yeah. like there's like swords, there's scissors, there's knives, there's cutters, and all these things scattered along the floor of the the uh, uh, underwater, which theoretically would help him cut the rope. Right, and the whole gag is all you have to do is untie the rope. No, all you have to do is pick up the rock. Ah, damn it! Close enough. <laughs> yeah, pick, up, pick up the rock, and he puts I, it in his, and he and he puts it. In, he takes the giant two foot two foot uh, idol and puts it in his in his chest. In his, in his, you know, shirt. He puts it in his, you know, his um, bottomless magic bag. Yeah, yeah. And then he just climbs out. But you were saying, like, if he, uh, if he, if you stay there, if you stay there, then yeah, you die, man. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen this game over screen. I know about the dying tip. I don't think I've ever put it to the test. I have. And here's uh-huh. the funny part: I think you can do it in more than one Monkey Island game. Oh really? <laughs> yes, they they find reasons to put him underwater. It's it's hilarious. I know in the second game, uh, you can you can die, but because Guybrush is telling the story to Elaine, yeah, she's like, "Wait, you're dead." <laughs> you know, like <laughs> clearly <that's>, you're not. <laughs> yeah, clearly you're not. Say, I'm not crazy about the second game's ending. I'm a big fan, but also I was of the age where I was perfectly receptive for it. Like I'm, 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 I'm 11 years old or 13 or, or 12 years old, and I'm just like, yeah. what the, what the, fuck? and then, like you know, as, as as you get older, you're like, oh, wow. you're like that made no <laughs> sense. That's yeah. why I appreciated that the third one, which is beautiful, by the way, if you can track down a copy, just grab on for dear life and enjoy it. Honestly, the third game. It, it looks like a Disney movie. It really does. And that's what you're controlling. And it's gorgeous. It's beautifully beautifully acted. It's beautifully animated. And the gameplay is just as top-notch as you would expect from LucasArts. Are, are we doing a Monkey Island episode? Is that what we're going to do now? I don't know. Yeah, can yeah. we do that next time? Can we? Can we? Can we? We can do a LucasArts uh, episode. Or Sierra versus LucasArts. Sierra v. LucasArts. Dawn of Adventure. <laughs> that's, not much of a, that's not much of a contest. <laughs> Hey, but you can buy uh, you can buy the Curse of Monkey Island on Steam for two hundred and twenty pesos. Wow, two hundred twenty gold pesos. Yeah, two hundred twenty pesos. Yep, and that's uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, Amer- that's in American dollars, five dollars. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Three point landing. Um, just going back to you know quarantine entertainment. Well, before we got sidetracked there. Um, another thing that I like, and this this ties back into what I was saying earlier about niche um, entertainment that has um, been given a platform. I like watching. I I genuinely enjoy watching toy channels. Not not unboxing oh. videos, not reviews, but just stuff that looks into the ridiculousness and the 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 whole mystique of these little plastic things that made up um, chunks of most of our childhoods. Oh, you got you got a you got to share with me the, those, those those toy channels because I'm I, I that's a world that I'm not really engaged with. Seriously, oh, okay. Um, there's Toy Galaxy, which is fantastic because Toy Galaxy goes into like the history and the background of 
classic toy properties from um, years past, like whether it's G.I. Joe, Transformers, Ghostbusters, that sort of thing. Because what's cool that I don't think that a lot, I mean, nowadays when a movie comes out, right, or a new show, <clears throat> when these things come out now, people just take it for granted. There's going to be toys. There's going to be merchandising. There's going to be uh, maybe a cartoon to support this product. But back in the 80s, that was the first time that any of this had happened on a wide scale. Back then, it, it was only until the early, it wasn't until the early 80s that the United States Congress overturned a law that previously forbade animated programs to be created that were based on toys because they didn't want kids to be watching 30-minute toy commercials. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, this topic has, is, is now like really widely discussed on many toy, cha- toy uh, history, cha- history uh, essays. And like I think they even made it the center of the first season of Toys That Made Us on yeah, Netflix. Yeah, on Netflix. That's right. That's yeah. right. And yeah. one of the first programs that took advantage of this was He-Man, actually, in the Masters of the Universe. And that's just that just that just exploded. It became a huge property. It became a fantastic, uh, long-lasting franchise that still has fans to this day. They're still making toys based on that. So when you watch Toy Galaxy, you can actually see the enthusiasm and the passion of the guys behind it because they're just talking about stuff that they loved, and you, it, it comes across in every every episode that they do. Um, there's another. I'll, I'll one. check this out. I'll check this out. I'm looking at the channel right now. Let's- that's pretty cool. There's another one that's um, that covers similar material. It's called um, retro blasting. But the guy there is so incredibly angry at anybody that contradicts him, at anyone that posts anything on his page that he doesn't agree with, that he will devote entire chunks of episodes just refuting it, just being defensive and indignant. That's not a that's not a great attitude to have. It's really not, but he's got a heck of a collection, can I just say. <laughs> <laughs> and in the first few episodes, it was fun because it was something he ran with his wife, uh, the channel. So, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shame, really, that he's just so angry that I just couldn't watch it anymore. Oh, that sucks, man. That sucks. Man. You know, I mean, like, we're all, we're all emotional creatures and we're all, right, like, right. passionate creatures, but you know, when you when it, and, and there's there's room for that. There's room for that in all big channels. If anything, I actually am not attracted to channels where uh, creators try to come off as very like cold and, as you said one earlier, dry and you know right. like oh right. I'm I'm too good. I'm too good and too rational to bear my heart to show my emotions to feel anything. Right. That's not something that attracts me. But you also have to learn how to harness your emotions and and sort of like make peace with how you feel about, about the things that, that upset you so that you can channel it towards making your content better or at least you know more engaging. Or just accept the fact that the mere, the mere notion of being on a public platform means that you're open to comments and criticism that can cut either way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, not, like, not everyone's going to agree with you and you can't do anything about that. Yeah, and the thing, is, the thing about that also is that you have to choose how much I call it, I, you have to choose how much oxygen you give your critics, which is to say that I exactly. think it would be wrong to say, oh, I'm just going to ignore all the critics, you know, because the audience, the audience who is loyal to you will, will feel like, will feel more loyal to you if they think that they can, if they believe 
that they can have a reasonable conversation with you about how to make your content better, more appealing, what they like, what they didn't like. Like that is a valuable relationship to cultivate. But at the same time, you cannot dignify the response. Uh, you cannot dignify the people who are obvious haters. You know, with, with, uh, you cannot dignify them with responses that waste your time and waste your energy. I agree with you completely, honestly. Yeah. Okay. How are we going to wrap this up? <laughs> oh, I was about to talk about another channel, but... Um, no, go ahead. Wanna... Go ahead, please. I want to hear this. Uh, there's so much. I, I mean, I'm just looking at my subscription tab here. Like, I've got this channel called The Kanipa Effect. What um, is that? Now, this is very interesting. It's a What's a Kanipa? Channel. I actually don't know what it is. He has a picture of a penguin as his, as his, as his avatar. Maybe uh, the Kanipa is an uh, obscure breed of penguin or something. I'm not sure. You but never thought to look this up. Nope, 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 nope. And you're never going to. <laughs> well, now I am, since you, <laughs> since you commanded me. No, I was just making an observation. Oh, if I type Kanipa, I just get Kanipa effect. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a surname. I, I wouldn't know. You're the fan here. Uh, so this is a guy who, um, who makes videos about anime. And what it is, is Ooh, he this talks about... cool. Yeah, he talks about like... Uh, animation studios and the animation industry. I think this is the thing that is really cool is that when you're the thing about the thing that holds people at arm's length in the anime industry is that it's an industry that is being produced in a culture and a language that isn't necessarily considered mainstream, even right. though that even though the medium itself is mainstream, right? That so is true. Even though uh, we already have a very close relationship with the American entertainment industry, regardless of where you are in in the globe. That's not the same with anime. And what this content creator does is that he really pays attention to the people who make anime, the mm -hmm. studios that make anime, and like what their styles are and where the anime industry is going. Right. And I think it's really, really great stuff. Even if you're not a fan of anime, I think watching this series will make you on board with anime. <clears> because I am looking at learn. the topics and yeah, this actually looks pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So just pick a, pick a video that seems interesting to you. And you, you know, I think you might find this channel incredibly appealing and I, you know, yeah that that's that's another thing i've been watching <laughs> that reminds me actually of an anime that i greatly enjoy an anime and a manga that i read uh, just last no just did what what year is it now just <laughs> just last year <laughs> <laughs> time time moves so slowly <laughs> these days everything blends into the next uh, but, what were you reading yeah i was reading bakuman um, it's not a superhero. Don't worry about it. It's about these two best buddies who start out in high school and they decide that they're going to be the greatest manga creators ever. Oh, cool, 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 and cool, it's cool. incredible because it charts their rise through the ranks. Um, they start out as newbies and then eventually they get to the point where their manga is going to be adapted into an anime, actual anime. And um, the, 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 the entire mission of the hero, of one of the, of one of the leads, the, he's the writer, his partner is an artist. The, the mission of the, of the writer, uh, basically, it, it's fantastic. Okay, I, I don't want to spoil it. It's just incredible in how it gives you an insight into the world of manga and anime and the fandom that surrounds it. And also why anyone would be demented enough to try and work in such a demanding profession. Because it's incredibly thankless, honestly. And the chances that you're going to become famous off it are next to nil. But they do it out of pure um, love and passion for it. And I love that. I really do. So you've been reading a... Here's the funny thing. 
it's actually based on the experiences of some real life artists and writers. And they work in some of those personalities in there. Like the editors at Shonen Jump um, are, are, are caricatured in there. Some of the writers of other manga like uh, Sailor Moon or Hunter Hunter are in there. But they don't refer to them by name. Obviously. <laughs> but it's, it's just incredible, honestly. God. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I could I could go on and on for the rest of this episode talking about more and more content. I think we'll have to save that for another day, or um, we'll post some of these up on the on the on the Facebook page. Absolutely, we gotta show and, people that we're not crazy that all these things exist. Yeah, yeah, and not just that, but like I think there's a lot of like in this time of foreign time, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of content, you know, to help keep us busy, keep us engaged, and keep us informed and entertained about the pop cultural world around us. And, you know, we we here at Three Point Landing cannot be your only guides. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, we're we're guiding people? What is wrong with them? Why are they they listening? Why are they listening to us? (laughs) But seriously, guys, um, it is now, these are scary times that we live in. And um, wherever you are, we hope you're safe. And um, if you're working from home, um, Hopefully, it's not getting to you. Um, I hear that a lot of people have been having issues because there's no more divide between home and work. So we hope that you guys are staying mentally healthy. And if you have time to check out some of the stuff that we're going to be sharing on the Facebook page in the next couple of uh, weeks, we'll be sharing links to the stuff we talk about. We'll be sharing more quarantine episodes. And uh, we hope that um, you all can stay safe and come along for the ride. Nice. Mm. So, um, yeah, until our next quarantine session, um, this has been Three Point Landing. I'm Misha. Who am I? I don't even know. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to break it to Les Mis there, but... Oh. I'm sorry. Did, did you want to do it again? <laughs> Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. But you're the only one who's going to burst into the song. No, I'm going to actually do this seriously. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, here we go. You've been listening to Three Point Landing. Stay tuned for our next quarantine episode. This has been Misha. This is Matthew. I thought you were going to do the thing. What? what? I thought you were going to burst into song. No, I said I'm not going to do it anymore. I thought you were going to do the song seriously. No, I'm going to do this seriously. The outro seriously. But you never do anything seriously. How am I supposed to know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, till next time. This episode of Three Point Landing was produced, recorded, and distributed under quarantine by Big Baby Studios. Follow us on Facebook at Three Point Landing PH.